Uh, this podcast, which is number 98, entitled Reflections in a Golden Eye, is what my friend Fred Rogers might call a onesie, or I might be um, dropping on you a onesie. That is to say, it's a once-off and very particular reflection, short on a thought that occurred uh, recently uh, while far away, and uh, it's sort of also, for me, uh, therapeutically or creatively, in terms of the process of publishing and recording these podcasts, a kind of a buffer, a kind of a step up to getting back in the harness and the groove of this kind of thinking that I uh, seek to present for what it is worth. And um, this onesie, which will set the stage for a far um, perhaps more heuristic or ideally fruitful exploration in the next podcast, which will be entitled Peasy's Night at the Bardo, or to quote the Marx Brothers, A Night at the Bardo. This particular podcast is a kind of lens on a question. And the question which I'm asking you to consider is what a book really speaks to you. Now, we often say what movies really speak to you or what television show speaks to you or what um, media symbolic substitute conveys or resonates with your own experience, conveys an inward truth which you are attracted to and to which you gravitate. And it's a very good question because in a sense, your media interest or your literary interest or your avocational interest never lies. Actually, it can go all the way to fly fishing and Sir Isaac Walton down to um, your ecclesiastical and theological interests, if you have any, or your artistic and pop culture interests. Uh, they, in a sense, don't lie. They are like True North. So if there's a book or a television show or a video or a movie or a, a particular avocational interest that continues to seize your attention and your heart and mind, that is True North. That is a compass. That is a definite um, marker of something that is going on with the whole person. And this particular podcast uh, deals with two very unusual sentences, which I've sort of checked off and marked over the years, always wanting to comment on them because they reflect such a trenchant power, these two little sentences I'm going to read to you, about how people are drawn to and um, abreacting within and often even um, both curatively helped, but more importantly, um, kind of named by their interests. And in these two passages, which are from two very great books, the two, uh, three uh, books which I still, uh, at this point in my life, regard as the best books I know are um, By Love Possessed by James Cool Cousins, which will come as no surprise, uh, The Genius and the Goddess, 1955, by Aldous Huxley, which is kind of the fourth philosophical novel, or you might say the fifth, which in a way culminates them all and in its brevity and in its contemporaneity is so undated and so completely in the now that I recommend it more than any other of his novels, although Time Must Have a Stop is right in there. But the second book that has so uh, resonated, The True North, in addition to By Love Possessed, is um, Aldous Huxley's The Genius and the Goddess. And the third continues to be uh, Charles Dickens's novel Dombey and Son which I still believe, and you know, who am I to say, but for me personally, having read all these books of late, or almost all of his novels, not every one, but almost all of them, it's Dombey and Son that combines the moral and um, redemptive and graceful and forgiving with the metaphysical 
ontogenic and cosmic element more closely, with the exception possibly of David Copperfield, of any of Dickens' novels. And I cannot recommend to you highly enough Dombey and Son, if you don't mind uh, excerpting one character who's way overdrawn. But hey, who isn't way overdrawn? And what have you not done that hasn't included something way overdrawn? But back to the point of True North. If it is true, as I believe, that the body never lies and your bodily reactions to various stimuli and situations and experiences are kind of a true north, and and this is what the sort of big uh, current uh, bonanza called mindfulness is all about, which is really – actually it's a spinoff of a religious understanding – that if you are sort of awake or mindful to what's going on in your body, you have an index, uh, a a kind of um, barometer. Uh, Ding, 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 ding. We have a little lightning sort of machine they've installed in typical post-9-11 paranoia not too far from where I live that is constantly going off. Ding, 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 ding. Well, it is, in a sense, a barometer of electricity in the air. Absolutely. Do we need it? Well, maybe once every two years, but in any event, constantly. Ding, 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 ding. Well, that is what mindfulness and wakefulness is really about. But these, uh, I'm just saying that books are often your ding, 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 or media or interests or people, the, the things to which you are attracted at a certain point of your emotional and immediate experience. These are um, uh, barometers or, um, in this case, electricity in the atmosphere, um, gaugers and indicators and warners that uh, tell you what's actually going on. Well, um, these two little sentences where two uh, um, characters in two very brilliant books are um, sort of unmasked and they're true, in a sense, positive slash negative um, um, direction as people is utterly detected. These two sentences are interesting because they not only um, say something to me, but I think they will sort of put paid on your own attraction to material. And so you listen to this and think about what it, how does that apply to me? How does that how does that relate to what I relate to, to the particular material at this point in my life? And men are very often the primary victims and protagonists here of finding a a, a form of media, rock and roll, you know, mm. uh, that sort of um, abreacts or is, is symbolic or a signpost to what is emotionally going on. And often, as in religion, the uh, the sign becomes too completely confused with the thing signified. And what's really important here is always the thing signified, not the sign itself. And we know that about sacraments in terms of the 39 articles and the old catechism, but we know it also as people. It's uh, the wedding ring that I wear is a symbol of, uh, of, of my marriage to Mary. The wedding ring in itself has no uh, actual value. It has a great meaning for me because it, um, uh, is the sign of that which is enduring and marvelous and life-giving and enhancing and historically um, accompanying in my personal experience. And you will have many examples in your own. Now, down to this. I talked about by love possessed, the genius and the goddess um, as uh, two, and then Dombey and Son as the uh, trifecta, that horrible word. Very trend. Let's call it the trinity 
of uh, of books that appeal to me. But you've got yours. You've got a quattrofecta or a quattrocenta fecta. You've got your own. It may be a one thing. But in uh, two particular books, in this case, The Genius and the Goddess and the late novel by Cousins, which is not as successful as the earlier ones entitled Morning, Noon, and Night, we have two amazing sentences. And I'll read first the one from The Genius and the Goddess. And this comes on page 22 and 23 of a novel. And I'll simply say that the woman who is uh, uh, described in this uh, very quick uh, dash picture of where she is and what the author intends you to understand about her, which is then fully verified in her tragic and fascinating and beguiling and seductive and also very authentic and emotionally true experience. Um, this uh, this is the wife of Henry Martins, the ridiculous genius, quote, end of quote, of the novel. His wife is the goddess, and uh, she is sort of unveiled in the opening introduction of her on page 22 and 23. The young um, John Rivers, the young hero, is sort of 19, and he's escaped from his uh, suffocating home life uh, to take a kind of laboratory assistance job in St. Louis with this Nobel Prize-winning scientist, physicist, and his uh, remarkable family. The man does not deserve the wife he has, and here's how she is described. I waited another 10 seconds. This is John Rivers on his first initial introduction to his new boss's family. I waited another ten seconds, then in desperation advanced into the room. The recumbent poetess blocked my path. This is actually a daughter. I stepped over her. This is a daughter of the woman we're talking about and the Nobel Prize-winning physicist. Pardon me, I murmured. She, the daughter, paid no attention. But the reader of William James heard and looked up. Over the top of the pluralistic universe, a work by William James, her eyes were brilliantly blue. Now, we saw earlier uh, this on the same page. Sitting in a rocking chair, her left hand on his, her husband's, forehead, and a copy of William James's pluralistic universe in her right, the most beautiful woman I had ever seen was quietly reading. Now, that's fascinating, that Huxley should um, introduce his heroine, the goddess, by means of the book that she is reading, and to say it twice, a copy of William James's pluralistic universe in her right. And then it says, but the reader of William James heard and looked up. Over the top of the pluralistic universe, her eyes were brilliantly blue. Are you the man about the gas furnace? she asked. Her face was so radiantly lovely that for a moment I couldn't say a word. I could only shake my head. Well, um, that is such a resonant paragraph, and there is so much subtlety in that, not only as it turns out later in the book, but uh, just right off the bat. What is he saying? Well, this woman, who turns out to be a very gifted and extraordinarily um, resourceful a profoundly gifted person in her own way as gifted and far more self-understanding as her brilliant husband is reading William James's The Pluralistic Universe. In other words, she is drawn to pluralism. Now, we know that Aldous Huxley was a monist, and I'm a monist for what that's worth, but <coughs> Huxley himself had been converted through um, all sorts of younger experiences, and the chronicle of this is in his great early novel, Eyeless in Gaza, he had been converted to a form of mystical monism, and those are just words to say that he had seen that underneath everything was one thing, 
love energy, love. Let's just call it love. Uh, but you can call it God. You can call it reality. You can call it the absolute. All the different words, they, they are purely almost tacit and um, very um, uh, encourageably insufficient um, expressions in verbal intercourse for what uh, Huxley is believing, that underneath all things there is basically one thing. Underneath and within all human beings, diverse as we all are in so many different ways, there is basically one sort of person trying to get out, one love, God, reality, um, absolute um, unifying power that is attempting to find its way in the flesh. And that this oneness is that which finally gives understanding, and in the best sense, uh, with a kind of deeply low anthropology, to use Christian terms, it <clears throat> gives a kind of release, a transcendence of release to the human being when he or she understands this. But um, the other way of looking at life, uh, pluralism, is to sort of see the many as opposed to the one. And there's a lot, there's a very ancient argument. And doesn't it go back to the Parmenides? I mean, doesn't it go back in Plato to the Parmenides? Uh, you, you go and look at that one. Um, and interestingly enough, as I think I commented, the pluralistic universe was written by um, William James, the Harvard philosopher and student of religion, <clears throat> who was so wonderful. Uh, but he was in reaction, as he stated frequently uh, in all sorts of letters and journal entries, to his dad, Henry James Sr., the father of William James and also the very famous brother William uh, Henry James the novelist. That is Henry James Sr., the father of William James the philosopher and Henry James the novelist. Henry James Sr. had become a, a monist in relation to his Presbyterian uh, uh, collapse uh, at Princeton Seminary and First Presbyterian Church in Albany. And his monism, which was kind of a transcendentalist sort of format, he really did believe what a lot of New England friends of his said they believed, and he acted on it, and his children became, <clears throat> as the novels of Henry James reveal very powerfully and very realistically, pluralists. But the point is, uh, this woman is, uh, the goddess is, uh, her problem is going to come down to the fact that she's not integrated. Her sexuality, <clears throat> her love, her emotional life is quite segregated from the, uh, her, her, her need to be completely secondary to this enormously um, voracious, in every sense, husband, the fool that she's married to and saddled with. And we're going to find a woman who's basically the victim of her own uh, instinctively blocked pluralism, which uh, makes her an unreconciled person. That is to say, she, she is not a unified human being, and we discover this in a very grave <laughs> set of circumstances that relate to sex and love that proceed in the novel that are absolutely accurate to life. So here we have a entire universe of a powerfully gifted but also ultimately very confused and finally tragic heroine whose blue eyes are staring twice in two pages over a copy of William James's book, The Pluralistic Universe. Now, isn't that fascinating? Look at you. What, 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 what is your equivalent of that? What book sort of symbolizes where you are uh, psychologically, personally, um, spiritually, aesthetically, emotionally? And because it's bound to be basically a matter of your emotional experience. You know, is it Pride and Prejudice? <clears throat> is it Jane Austen for you? Is it, is it uh, 
golly, uh, what did my father uh, used to, he was riveted by Oswald Spengler for years, which was a book that had an enormous weight and completely forgotten today. Have you read uh, The Decline and Fall of the West? Is that what it's called? Or is it just called The Decline of the West? I forget. Uh, uh, the apotheosis of the, the, the twilight of the gods, whatever it is, I, I don't know either. Um, uh, the, 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 but, but that book uh, symbolized something, and he re- read it and read it and read it and read it, read it again. But you may have had a dad or a father or a grandfather or, for that matter, a wife or a child who's constantly drawn. What is uh, – what, what, what is – was I reading the other day um, – uh, Oh, I think it was in a, 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 a meditative book from the ninth century, somewhere in China, where I've been, by the way, in which the author says that uh, people are like apes. They uh, keep throwing away things and then picking them up again. Oh, what a great Pe- – people are like apes. Uh, they keep uh, throwing away a banana skin and then picking it up again, again and again and again and again. Well, that's really what we're talking about. Now, you may be stuck with a particular uh, – book or a particular thing that you keep going back to, and that's interesting, and that's revealing. Or you may, in fact, be a rotating feast. Uh, Jack Kerouac said that he had he, he lamented uh, concerning all his, quote, all my enthusiasms that have gone down the drain. Well, think of all the enthusiasms you've had that have gone down the drain because your emotional state was quavering like a butterfly and moving around in a pluralistic universe. So this week it was uh, some group from the 1970s, and then the next group, I mean, currently I'm into the looking glass. Looking Glass, who had that wonderful hit in 1972 entitled Brandy. Brandy, you were a fine girl. What a good wife you would be. What does it say? Brandy wears a braided chain made from uh, silken threads from the north of Spain. One of the most ridiculous lines in the history of 1970s rock and roll. And yet the song is undoubtedly a universal song about a woman who loves truly. A man is a kind of footloose wanderer, but a woman who loves truly. The song is great. Well, all I'm trying to say is this week for me, it's Brandy by Looking Glass. By the way, look at the video from 1972 of that group performing this song. It is not to be believed. It is so both ridiculous and wonderful, is the highest point of absurdity and the greatest point of depth all at the same time. And what is he wearing? But anyway, forget all that. Um, You see, it it goes, uh, my little enthusiasms travel, my baby changes like the weather, uh, and your enthusiasms do. But this woman is revealed by what she reads. Now, let me give you one other example, and I'll make my point, and we're done. And this, uh, I'm your stepping stone, this uh, podcast, which is a kind of stepping stone to the next uh, one, which will be called um, A Night at the Bardo. Um, reflecting an experience I had on the 1st of March 2012, which quite disturbed me and settled me, and I've been thinking about nothing else, but I hope to replicate that in some way that is uh, interesting to you, especially in relation to your own death. But that will come later. Right now, we're at uh, episode 98, entitled Reflections in a Golden Eye, and these reflections are uh, touched by what you like to read. Or what you're drawn to on the internet, for that matter. Or what's on your... Didn't Mike Horton, the wonderful speaker at the Mockingbird Conference coming up in April 19th through 21st. And by the way, come to the Mockingbird Conference. It's it's wonderful. It's a, a broadly diverse group of people who are passionate about the grace and mercy of God and really understand it and are trying to apply it in a, in a non-breathless, uh, rather panoramic way to all aspects of life. It's real Christianity uh, with uh, reflections in a golden eye. And that golden eye is absolutely... 
solution and mercy. And what better eye uh, through which to see these uh, things? Do you remember um, – what was it called? It came from outer space, that opening scene in which uh, the everything uh, is seen in the canyon where the flying saucer has landed through the eye of the alien and that incredible theremin music. Everything is seen in that scene towards the beginning, almost the very beginning uh, of uh, – actually, it's the penultimate scene of uh, It Came From Outer Space from 1954 or 5, when uh, everything is seen, reflections in a golden eye, and it's very powerful. Well, you've got a golden eye, and what is the reflection? Uh, the eye will be um, showing you true north on the compass. If you're willing to look at what you're drawn to on your uh, – I say that because Mike Horton always says, you know, sometimes if you want to know where you are, look at your iPod. Look at the music you're listening to in your iPod. That's true north. Well, here's a little sentence from page 338 of James Gould Cousins, um, to me, amazing novel, but not as good because he'd been so attacked. Morning, Noon, and Night, published in 1968. Remember, the last novel he'd written prior to that was 1957. And he had been so done in, although he couldn't quite admit it, by the terrible, uh, terrible um, uh, attack on his person that By Love Possessed had occasioned, which is a truly great book, that his writing had in many ways um, declined. And uh, his last book, which is a failed masterpiece, Morning, Noon, and Night, uh, is the result of uh, the ego um, dilation? No, delusion that had occurred through the ad hominem remarks. But here he writes on page 338, in the same way that Haldus Huxley wrote about his heroine uh, in The Genius and the Goddess in terms of a single book, Cousins here is going to talk about a uh, character, a minor character in his book, who whose entire life and uh, character is summed up by the book he reads. Now, um, it is to be said that the um, Henry Worthington, the uh, hero of the book, his uncle Tim, who lives in the back bay in Boston and is very Harvard in the old sense of that word, and uh, um, a very gifted uh, financier in Boston, his uncle Tim, unlike almost everyone else, um, has uh, somehow uh, been able to uh, forecast the Great Depression to come in 1929, and very shortly before the crash of 29, um, Henry Worthington's uncle, Tim, in the back bay, Henry Worthington being a recent graduate of Harvard College, his uncle, Tim, uh, anticipated the stock market crash and uh, put all his investments into other forms, I think in gold or some kind of bonds that were uh, truly true north, and uh, save the family uh, legacy. The family money was saved through Uncle Tim. And uh, this uh, Uncle Tim, who's otherwise an impenetrable sort of character, as far as the young Henry Worthington is concerned, this Uncle Tim uh, reveals himself to be a man of tremendous wisdom and understanding. And now we have a little paragraph about Uncle Tim. You could hardly uh, avoid picking up at least a little of what the company of educated men which you joined on graduation from Harvard, that's in parenthesis, was supposed to know. In my Uncle Tim's back bay house, library sets handsomely bound of the English classics filled shelf on shelf. And I know he often reread the novels of Charles Dickens. I and my friends, of course, saw this as saying, 
everything there was to say about his literary or artistic taste, which we most mistakenly confused with intelligence. Obtuseness of mine, however, writes Henry Worthington, kept me unaware that the re-reader of Dombey and Son possessed intelligence of the first order, a keenness of intellect in which comprehension and prescience combined to afford Uncle Tim his really remarkable grasp of the history and geography of the 1920 world of economics and finance. Now, um, Uncle Tim, he later goes on to say, was much helped by his inherited Yankee money sense, whose right name, let us allow, may be avarice. But um, what we hear there is that his extremely sagacious and percipient, uh, wise and realistic prognosticator and assessor of economic realities in the United States at that period allowed his Uncle Tim to change his position prior to the stock market crash of 1929 and save the family fortune and not only save it but ultimately prosper it. Now, did you know that the Episcopal Diocese of Virginia, which used to be called simply the Diocese of Virginia, <clears throat> did the same thing in the Civil War through a remarkable uh, kind of luck and wisdom? I don't remember the exact details, but the then Bishop of Virginia, was it Meade at that point? Um, I think it still was, but it may have been John's. But in any event, the Bishop of Virginia at the time, or his advisors in the Diocese of Virginia, which was part of the <clears throat> Confederacy, uh, all of whose members were about to be ruined for generations by the defeat they suffered in the Civil War in 1865 and before, the victims of a radically inflated currency and a complete historical disaster for the southern states was somehow saved from making uh, – and, and they either – I don't know how it was. I just remember reading it at great length at one point in my life, that the uh, money or endowment of the Diocese of Virginia was saved by extraordinarily an accidental wisdom on the part of some individuals, such that the Diocese of Virginia came out of the Civil War with its basic uh, emoluments um, uh, preserved. And uh, this laid the foundation institutionally for the phenomenal post-war success and which was rooted in a spiritual pre-war success of the Diocese of Virginia and the Episcopal Church. Now, did you know that? Isn't that interesting? Well, Uncle Tim, who is this man who understands so much about money, reveals here to his obtuse nephew that the re-reader of Dombey and Son possessed intelligence of the first order. Well, now that is fascinating because if you've read or looked at Dombey and Son, which I really can't recommend to you highly enough, whether you see yourself as a Christian reader of, um, of, 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 of wise literature in the West or whether you see yourself as simply someone who would like a good book, uh, that is a very good book. There are bits of the Pickwick Papers that it uh, touches on where the deepest truths of the human condition and the uh, meaninglessness of the one when it is not understood as being one but is simply seen as the pluralistic um, 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 concatenation of one damn thing after another, to quote Huxley, uh, but rather is seen with depth, the opening scene of the death of Paul Dombey Jr.'s wife and Paul Dombey, uh, mother and Paul Dombey. Senior's wife, combined with little Paul Dombey's conversations about the sea, 
which is a metaphor uh, for uh, the uh, cosmos. Uh, Dombey and Son, most perfectly of all Dickens' novels, although there's a, a hint of it in Pickwick Papers, and there's a very large uh, expression of it in um, uh, David Copperfield right from the very beginning. That novel uh, c- captures the union of the soteriological impulse of the Christian religion of mercy and absolution with uh, the uh, great um, metaphysical questions of what is going on here, uh, what is real and what is not, what is enduring and what is transient, what is, uh, creates operational happiness over that which creates a clinging and attached uh, desperate disappointment in life. This book, Dombey and Son, it captures that <clears throat> unity of the metaphysical or ontological with the socio- soteriological and moral in the most powerful sense, the transactional question of um, love to the loveless, mercy to the needy, and um, forgiveness to the sinner. That um, book captures it so perfectly. And here is this man, Uncle Tim, in 1968 novels, Morning, Noon, and Night, revealing himself by reading a book of such profundity. Well, that's all I wanted to say. True North is reflected by what you are drawn to in movies, television, videos, music, your iPod, your shuffle, your library, however it works out with you, young or old, new economy, old economy, digital or antiquarian, what you are drawn to from at this particular moment in your emotional experience of life is true north for you. And Uncle Tim, Dombey and Son, the rereader of, and for the hero of, uh, the heroine of uh, uh, Genius and the Goddess from 1955, it's William James's Pluralistic Universe, which lets her down. Because by the way, what you're drawn to, while it may uh, embody some aspirations, may in fact embody the aspirations of your ego rather than your ultimate being. If if what you're drawn to is simply a patch and uh, a, a, a patch and cut job on your ego's aspirations, it will collapse and it'll just go from one thing to another to another to another, from this to that to that to that to that to that, to that until the day you die. On the other hand, if your aspiration is for finding some kind of a unified field theory of what in the heck is going on with your life and your failed attempts at ego aspiration satisfaction, if you're looking for something larger than that and you are drawn to something larger than that, for example, Jacques Demy or Rossellini for that matter, but I might actually say Jacques Demy, see model shop. Jesus Christ. See model shop if you want to see the one and a kind of work of art that came out of where the heck did this come out of? <clears throat> there is not a pluralistic universe there. There is a there is a kind of a unity of, of, of what Sartre called paste, you know, the sort of ultimate being, which is both dreadful and attractive. The paste of ultimate being is sort of um, unconsciously presented in model shop of all things. The odd Jacques Demy American film of, from 1968 also. Isn't that interesting? Well, anyway, um, either your ego is fooling your better self through uh, a concatenation or chain, 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 chain of fools, the chain of things you like, which simply goes from one damn thing to another until there's one last damn thing, which is your death and then nothing more. Or you're being drawn to something very powerful, which in fact Dombey and Son is trading on very deeply and not probably William James's pluralistic universe, although I don't for a minute, wipe my feet on William James. Good Lord, have you read The Varieties of Religious Experience? It is a fabulous book. Every believer in at least the Christian fold uh, of whatever kind, from Quaker to uh, Roman Catholic, 
all of us need to read um, the varieties of religious experience. But nevertheless, probably in the ultimate course of events, probably Henry James Sr., the monist, was wiser than William James, the greater son. In this case, it is not great David's greater son, interestingly enough. Well, that's what I wanted to say. This is my little stufe, uh, stufenweise, a little attempt to sort of move gingerly towards the next one, which will, I hope, be called PZ's Night at the Bardo. That will be coming up, but not immediately. I give you this uh, with joy and happiness, and I'm back, and uh, send you much love and hugs. God bless. I wish I was a spaceman, the fastest guy alive. I'd fly you around the universe in Fireball XL5. Way out in space together, compass of the sky. My heart would be a fireball. Would be a fireball.